Well, about 350 years ago, a book was written, which is still a classic today. In fact, it has been in print ever since it was published in 1678. It is thought to be the first novel ever written in English that has since then been translated into 200 different languages and obviously is known throughout the whole world. And that book is the book called The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. I remember I read it many, many years ago, and it is an allegory of someone's spiritual journey through life. And the main character is a man appropriately named Christian, because it's an allegory, right? And so he's named Christian, and so the, the beginning of the book talks about the burdens that he's carrying and how he is freed from those. And then it, it kind of chronicles his life through obviously different allegorical stories. And about halfway, I believe, through the book, Christian comes to what the author John Bunyan has two different valleys that he has to walk through. And one of those, he titles it the Valley of Humiliation. And in this valley when he's, all these things are coming after and attacking him, he puts on what we looked at last week. He puts on the armor of God. And by putting on the armor of God, the things that God has given him, he fights off these different things and he's able to get through. But then he finds himself in the next valley, which is the valley of the shadow of death. The valley of the shadow of death. And in this novel, John Bunyan, he, he writes that Christian tried all the things that had worked before, but it didn't seem to help him. And so he went to his most powerful tool that he had, which is what John Bunyan called the powerful tool in his armor of all prayer. Of all prayer. And he found that in the valley of the shadow of death, prayer was the only thing that could sustain him there. That none of the other things worked. None of the other things provided the comfort and the clarity he needed. Only prayer did that. Well, if you have your Bibles, would you open them with me tonight to the book of Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. For the last couple weeks, we've been going through just this 10-11 verse section on the armor of God. And a few weeks ago, we looked at this call for us to stand firm, not in our own power, but realizing the spiritual battle that's going on around us. And so standing firm in the power of God and in the strength of his might. And then last week we looked at all of the armor of God. There's six things there that are listed out that God gives each and every one of us who are a follower of Jesus Christ. And we talked about how that armor so often is looking back at our identity, at who God has made us to be. And how this battle isn't something we fight ourselves, but the weapons that God gives us are meant to be fought alongside one another. And why community and church is so important. And how so many times these weapons are to fight off the lies that Satan would tell us, but to focus on the truth of God's word. And now Paul in this passage transitions to the final three verses that we're going to look at in, in Ephesians chapter 6. And he focuses in on this idea of prayer and the role that prayer should face in the spiritual battle we face and the role that prayer should, should have in our everyday life. And so tonight we're going to look at four characteristics of prayer that we should have in our lives 
from these verses tonight. So in Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 18, it says this, verse 18, Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. The first characteristic of prayer outlined in this passage is that we need to pray constantly. We need to pray constantly. Prayer is not just to be a part of our life that we do at set periods of time. It's not just something for morning or afternoon or evening. But prayer is to be a constant part of the growing and maturing Christian life. The, uh, Paul puts it this way in the book of 1 Thessalonians. He says this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And this call here in Ephesians 6. The, the, those first words, praying at all times. This idea of praying without ceasing. Those aren't the only places. We could look at several different passages that talk about our need as followers of Jesus to be regularly and constantly praying. Romans chapter 12 says that we are to be constant in prayer. Colossians 4 says to be steadfast in our prayers. So you might be thinking, well, so does Paul envision then that like, I don't leave my house and I just like sit on my bed and pray all the time. Like, is that what he's thinking about? Like, I'm not supposed to do anything but prayer? No, that's, that's not what Paul is saying is that we have no social life. We don't go to jobs and we just sit home and pray all day. But what he's saying is, is that this prayer should be a constant thing in our lives and that prayer needs to become and should be for a follower of Jesus a habitual practice in our life. Prayer needs to be a habit that we have. A habit that we have that we are constantly practicing in our lives. Now, I have read a few different books the last year or two about habits and the role that habits play in our lives. Um, some researchers estimate that about 40 to 50% of how we live our lives are not made by conscious decisions that we make. They're made by the habits that we have formed over time. And so much of what we do and the actions that we take aren't because we consciously think that, but it's because of habits and routines that we have placed into our lives. And so we just naturally flow through different things. And so habits are good things or bad things, right, that we have in our lives. And so making prayer a habit will make it a constant part of our life. Now, what's interesting is as researchers have looked at how, how to integrate more habits into our lives, it, it says this in, in this book that I read, which I found so fascinating, is that habits are formed most of the time by making small incremental changes that go and exponentially build on each other. And so in his language, he says this, if you want to make a habit, just make a habit that changes your life by 1% for one week. And then the next week, make another one and build on it. And it doesn't seem drastic at the time. But when those habits start to build on top of each other, suddenly you're getting somewhere. He used the illustration of, say, you don't really work out. It's getting nice outside. You're like, you know what? I want to run the Chicago Marathon this year. I want to run. I mean, come on. It's a marathon. How hard can it be? It's like, I got like six months. 
Now he's saying if you're over here, the Chicago Marathon is like a really big goal, right? Like you can't just get off the couch and run a marathon. What he's saying is, so what you need to do is you need to make habits that will form you so you can be the type of person that will reach that goal because you don't exercise at all. So he said this, so so one of the the illustrations he uses is, so the first week, get up a half hour early when you would have time to run and just start getting up 30 minutes early. Don't even run. You're like, I'm on this marathon plan. It involves no exercise so far, right? So you've started to create a habit. The next week, he says, get up at the same time, but just put on running clothes. Another habit. The next week, put on your running clothes and leave the house. He doesn't say for how long or for what to do, right? The next week, leave the house for at least 10 minutes and walk. And he says, slowly build on top of that. And what you're doing is you're cultivating habits that slowly over time are moving you towards a large goal in your life to run something like the marathon. Now, I find that so helpful in breaking it down into small things because I don't know about you, but when the Bible says pray constantly, I'm like, I'm a long ways from that. I don't know about you, but I'm like, yeah, I can identify a lot of things in my life. Praying constantly is not an accurate description of how I would describe my prayer life. And I think if we were to talk and have a conversation, that would be true for a lot of us. And so it can be easy when you read a passage like this where it says, pray continually without ceasing, steadfast. You're like, well, that's hard. I don't, I I mean, I I struggle with prayer like once a day. So what, what am I supposed to do like to pray constantly? Am I just supposed to quit my job this week and stay home? What I want to challenge you this week is to start to build a habit into your life of more regular prayer, right? Start to build a habit this week of more regular prayer in your life. So I'm not going to ask you to go home and pray every day this week and constantly. What I want to ask you to do is this. What is one habit that you could form this week that would help you to pray more? What is one habit that you could put into practice this week that would help you pray more? Maybe it's this, that every time you get in your car, you pause for 30 seconds and pray. That Just make that a habit. And then the next week you could add another one and another one and you're moving closer to praying constantly. What if before you got off the bus or before you walked into work, you paused for one minute and prayed? What if if you don't already pray at meals, you decided every meal that I eat this week, I'm going to pray? What is a habit that you, there's no science to this, there's no right or wrong time to pray, but think about what is a habit that you could start to form this week, something very practical for you? Because God's call for our lives is to be praying constantly, to be regularly in prayer because he sees the battle going on around us and we see our need. And so when we read passages like this idea of praying constantly, think of just one habit, one change that you can make to start to move yourself so that your life is more filled with prayer. Verse 18 again says this, praying at all times in the Spirit. Praying at all times in the Spirit. The second characteristic of prayer in this passage is that we need to pray submissively. We need to pray submissively. This idea of praying in the Spirit also is in the book of Jude um, in verse 20. And it can be confusing to think about what does it mean 
to pray in the Spirit. The Spirit here, he's thinking about the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to pray in the Holy Spirit? Well, what it does not mean, what Paul is not saying here, is, is that praying in the Spirit is some sort of speaking in tongues or angelic languages. There's no context, there's no argument here that that's what Paul is thinking of, that this is some sort of charismatic prayer that's not known by others. But so what is, he, what is he saying, if it's to be described in our lives, that we're praying in the Spirit? A few thoughts for us. First, to pray in the Spirit means that our prayers are prompted by God. That we are sensitive to God's leading and working in our lives. I was struck with this as I was thinking about it this week, and it's something that I've tried to practice this week, is that I've tried to stop just for a few moments as I've been praying throughout the week and ask God, God, what do I need to be praying for? God, what do I need to be praying for? Literally asking God, God, what is it in my life that I should be praying for that I'm not, that I'm missing, that I'm forgetting about? Who, what am I not remembering right now? And I'm trying to, to center my life more around not just praying for what I think I want or what I need, but about what God would have me pray for. As we feel an impulse or, or God prompting us to pray, praying in the Spirit is responding to those things. The great preacher Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones has said that the quickest way to quench or to push down the Holy Spirit in our lives is to not obey an impulse to prayer. And so when we feel God saying, you should pray for that person, you should pray about this thing, it means that we're quick to do it and maybe even pausing and asking God for guidance and guiding us into what we should pray for. So first, it's that we are prompted by God. Secondly, that it's prayer that is in line with God's will. Praying in the Spirit means that it's prayer that is in line with God's will. Jesus often talked about when he taught his disciples how to pray. And in the book of John, when he talked about praying after he had gone, he said that whatever you ask in my name, it will be given to you. Now, Jesus wasn't telling the disciples like, all right, here's this little cheat code. Talk to God, ask him for anything. And at the end, just slab on in Jesus' name, amen. And God's like, oh man, they said in Jesus' name, I got to give it to him now mansions, million dollar jobs here, right? Jesus isn't saying this is the cheat code. What Jesus is saying is whatever you ask in my name, it will be given. He means according to my character and in my will. That's consistent with living a life that Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit would have us to live. And so praying in the Spirit is praying in a way that says, God, this is what I want but what I really want more than anything is what you want for me. See, too often in our prayers, we're really quick to tell God what we want, but not to listen for what God wants to say to us. A great way of praying in the Spirit and in line with God's will is modeled for us by Jesus. As he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, which was just hours before he was to be arrested and taken to be crucified. And he knew what was coming before him. He knew what was coming. And so he prayed this prayer in the Gospel of Mark. It says it this way. And Jesus said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup. That's talking about the burden and what he had to look forward to. Remove this burden from me. Yet not what I will but what you will. 
See, Jesus' prayer wasn't centered around what he wanted, but what God the Father wanted him to do. And praying in the Spirit is praying submissively, intentionally saying, God, whatever you would have for me in this, I want to obey. It's lining ourselves up with God's will. The third way that we are to pray in the Spirit is that we are depending on his power. We are depending on the Spirit's power. See, so often, at least I think when I think of the things that I have over the years prayed for, been tempted to, to focus my prayers on, is that it's not depending on God's power because for those prayer requests to be answered, all I need is like a little good luck and some good fortune. I don't actually need divine intervention. And I've been challenged by this question over the years. What would have happened this last week if every prayer you prayed, God said yes to? What would have happened? Whose life would be different? Just yours or other people's? Would just your bank account have increased and your job changed? Or would other people's eternal destinies be different? Would eternity be different because of the prayers that we prayed? See, too often our prayers are focused on increasing the quality of our life and not increasing God's glory in our life and in this world. We need to pray prayers depending on his power, praying large prayers that only God could answer. Why does God love to answer prayers that only he could do? Because it's clear in that way that only he will then get the glory. And so pray prayers that depend on God's power, not something that you could do on your own or anyone could do, but only God could do it and depend on him in those situations. Again, verse 18, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. You notice that word that's emphasized four times there? All. All. He's trying to get a point across on how important prayer is. I love it. He says to keep alert with perseverance. Keep alert with perseverance. See, the third characteristic of prayer in this passage is that we need to pray vigilantly. We need to pray vigilantly. It's this idea of being alert, being awake, being ready for what is to come. In 1 Peter, we were reminded of this, and we've read this verse before, but it, it lines up so well of why we need to be alert. It says, be sober-minded, be watchful. For your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. When I thought of praying vigilantly this week, watching and not being put off by the things of this world, my, my mind went to, again, Jesus, as I just mentioned there in Mark chapter 14, as he was praying before God. But do you remember what Jesus did? If you know the story, Jesus took his disciples into this garden right outside the city walls of Jerusalem. And he told them this, hey, my heart is burdened. I am overcome with burden. Would you stay here and pray with me for an hour? They're like, we got you. We got you, Jesus. All right, Jesus goes off. He prays. He comes back. His disciples asleep. All right, asleep. Not alert, not watchful. They didn't understand what was going on. And what Jesus calls us to is the opposite of that, being watchful, being 
alert. See, it's not just that we physically fall asleep. Some of you are like, oh man, how does he know that every time I go to pray, I fall asleep in bed? Well, that happens to me too sometimes. But Jesus isn't just thinking like, well, sometimes we fall asleep while we're praying. But it's actually the things of this world can make us so that our focus is no longer on God. So we aren't vigilantly praying for and seeking after the things of God. Jesus said this in Luke chapter 21. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. When I, uh, when I read that this week, I was like, oh man, cares of this life, that hits. But dissipation and drunkenness, like, oh, all right, I'm not an alcoholic. I'm good. I don't need to worry about that. One, uh, one commentator I was reading says, we often read drunkenness as referring just to alcohol, but what Jesus is easily referring to is someone who's drunk on their own pride and ambition. And I was like, oh, oh. Our own pride and ambition distracts us from watching for God because we're so focused on us. The cares of this life and the worries of this world can distract us instead of being alert and watching for God that we're so focused on us. And Jesus calls us to watch ourselves because he says this because this is the natural inclination of each of our hearts is instead of to look to God, it's to focus on ourselves. And so we have to be careful and we have to intentionally look to him because otherwise we will focus on ourselves. So be careful with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life that that day will come upon you suddenly like a trap. He continues, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth, but stay awake at all times. College students, that doesn't mean keep pulling all-nighters. Go to bed, all right? Praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. See, when, when Paul writes this immediately after talking about the spiritual battle that we are in, that we should be alert, should be awake, praying with all prayer, with perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. What he's saying is this, as you start to grasp the battle of what's going on in the world, that there's more than just the physical, that there is a spiritual battle out there, that should drive you to prayer. And the more you realize that, the more vigilant you will be in your prayers. The more you realize what is going on in the spiritual battle, the more vigilant you will be in your prayer life. It's interesting to see the last, especially here in the U.S., two weeks, how vigilant people have gotten to be about their personal health and hygiene, isn't it? Obviously, we all have seen um, and, and heard about coronavirus and the, the different things that have, have come and gone. I just found it fascinating how drastic measures some people have taken. I came across this. This is a page, I think he describes itself. For those who want to experience what you see on the New York subway without having to go on the subway. All right, and he, he documented this last week, a few different pictures of people fighting off the coronavirus. So here we've seen this a lot with masks. I'm not quite sure why the stuffed animal needs a mask as well. But apparently we want to keep that healthy, all right? So, so you have that. You also, it's a little more drastic, right? A little, a little more drastic. I think my favorite one is this one. Um, I really hope someone comes to church next week wearing a bucket over their head. Like that would be, 
That would be awesome. And then uh, I, th I think this is real. Like, that guy's not messing around. Or girl, right? Who knows? You can't tell. You can't see the person underneath, right? But they are vigilant about their personal hygiene. I mean, maybe they're not vigilant enough that they didn't read the Center for Disease Control that if you're not infected, actually wearing a mask doesn't even matter, right? Like, so it's so interesting, though, because we've been vigilant about these things, like washing your hands. I love how I saw one person be like, hold up. Are people now just understanding that they need to wash their hands regularly? <laughs> like, I thought this was a given part of being an adult, that like you use the bathroom, you wash your hands. But apparently for a lot of people, this is now a new revolu like revelation to them that this is an important part of life. Why has this become such a prominent thing? Because we're aware of some of the dangers out there if we don't. And so people have become vigilant about their personal hygiene because they understand what could happen if they aren't. As you start to understand and see that this world that you see around you is not all there is, that there is a spiritual battle taking place, I hope it drives you to be vigilant in your prayer life. That you'd be vigilant in seeking after God, praying for others, praying for yourself, praying for this church, because you realize that it's, there's a lot more going on. There's a spiritual battle that each and every one of us are in. And the reality of spiritual warfare should drive us to be vigilant in seeking after God, to be staying alert with perseverance. Paul continues in verse 19. He says this, continuing to talk about prayer, and pray, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. The fourth characteristic of prayer that Paul outlines in this passage is that we need to pray evangelistically. We need to pray evangelistically. Now, if you haven't been around church for a long time, that's one of those fancy words that I have to use just to prove that I went to grad school, all right? Evangelistically, like, what the world does that mean, all right? So evangelistically comes from the word evangel, which is basically someone who proclaims good news. Someone who proclaims good news. And so in the church world, we use the term evangelism to talk simply about sharing, telling other people the good news of what Jesus has done. Right? That's what evangelism is. And so to pray evangelistically means that our prayers aren't just focused on our needs and our wants, but that we're praying for people, people that we know and people like ourselves who have the opportunity to share and tell other people about what Jesus has done for us. And so these prayers are to be outward focused, not just focused on ourselves. I find it fascinating that here Paul asks not once but twice for him for, for them to pray for him for boldness. That Paul asked that they would pray for him for boldness. Now I don't know about you but I know for me I certainly identify with this and I just find it fascinating that here was a man who was like he traveled at the time basically the whole known world was like stoned was kicked out People were trying to kill him. And he seemed like, if you describe Paul, like most people are like, man, that guy's got no fear. Like he'll just walk up, he'll tell people what Jesus thinks about him and he'll leave. And Paul goes, man, in on my own, it's easy for me to get scared. It's easy for me to get timid. Pray that I would be bold. 
I don't know about you, but if the Apostle Paul is like, I need prayer for boldness and sharing my faith, I'm like, yeah, me too. Me too. And I want you to know that if you're timid, if you suddenly like the opportunity comes and your heart starts to beat really fast when you're like, oh my goodness, I could maybe talk about Jesus here. That's normal. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with you. But what you can do in that moment is pray for boldness for yourself. God, help me to be bold in this situation. I don't know exactly know what to say. This is a little uncomfortable for me, but God, would you give me boldness that I wouldn't shrink back and I would take advantage of the opportunity that you've placed before me? I know I so often have felt this pull as I've had opportunities or wanted to have opportunities to share what Jesus has done for me with other people. I remember last year I was taking an Uber home. I don't Uber a lot. So I was taking an Uber home. I was downtown. And so I was headed out to my house. So I knew it was going to be about 15, 20 minute drive. I get in. It was a pool. There was a couple of kids in the car. They got dropped off somewhere. So I'm like, I got this guy. I was sitting in the front seat too. So I could make eye contact with him. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to try and present the gospel. I'm like getting scared. But I'm like, all right, prayed a little bit. I'm like, all right, I'm going to do it. So I'm like, I'm just going to talk to him, right? So I look over and go, so how are you doing tonight? He looks at me and goes, thank you. I said, wait, wait, how long have you lived here? And he looked at me and he goes, no English. And I go, well, I tried, right? Like, <laughs> my heart was beating really hard for nothing, right? Like, okay, God, I, I, don't, I don't know whatever language he speaks. It's not English. I'm sorry, that's the only language I know, right? So I just prayed for him. And I prayed that God would bring someone who speaks his language into his life that could share with him the gospel. But I was in the car and it was like back and forth. I was like, you know what? If I don't say anything to him, no one will know and it will be fine. And I like I could make myself, I, I could forget about it real quick. Because it's easy when we feel timid to give excuses. But I want to challenge you, when you start to like worry, well, well, just make a quick prayer. So that God help me. God give me boldness. Paul asked that people would pray for him, and we certainly can pray for that for ourselves. I think that when we pray evangelistically, it's not just praying for ourselves with boldness, but it's praying also for those who we have the opportunity to share the gospel with. Pray for those who are hearing and who are watching our lives, for our neighbors, for our family, for our coworkers. I think sharing our faith is the front lines of spiritual warfare. Evangelism and sharing our faith is the front lines of spiritual warfare. Because as you read throughout scripture, the, the battle that takes place in our hearts and in our lives before we come to know Christ, it's clear it's not just a cognitive thing, but there's more going on than what we can see. In 2 Corinthians 4, it says this, In their case, the God of this world has, has blinded the minds of, of the unbelievers, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. See, prayer should be such a powerful and necessary part of sharing our faith because it's not the persuasiveness of your argument that saves anyone. It's the power of God. It's not our arguments and how well they're put together. I could give you the best gospel presentation. You want illustrations? I got you covered. You want straight scripture? I got you covered. You want two ways to live? I got you covered. I can give you all these different ways to do it, but you could still go and give the greatest gospel presentation to someone ever, and they'll be like, yeah, I don't really want that. Why is that so? 
Well, Paul says in 1 Corinthians this, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The next chapter, he says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. See, prayer is not just an add-on to sharing our faith with others. Because when we, if you're a follower of Jesus, when you decided to follow Jesus, it wasn't a cognitive decision that you decided to do, but it was a spiritual battle in your heart when God's Holy Spirit invaded into you and said, you need my saving grace, and you responded in obedience to him. And sharing our faith is the front lines of spiritual warfare. And so if you'd be like, oh man, I, I, I'm just going to start praying for someone, that's a great place to start. Prayer is not a substitute for evangelism. It's a necessary part of sharing our faith. God has given us so many tools that we have as Christians. And he talks about there is this battle going on, spiritual warfare, principalities and powers, and he just wanted to remind them, you are united to the one who is above all principalities and powers if you're a follower of Jesus. And through prayer, you have access to him who is above all things in the world. So what do you need to commit your life in prayer this week? Who do you need to pray for? What do you need to pray for? See, we face a spiritual battle. Spiritual growth following Jesus in this world is not just a result of trying harder, but it's relying more on him. In verse 10, as Paul started this whole section, he said this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. We are strong in God's might the more we depend on him. The more we depend on him is seen in our own personal practice of prayer. See, we could say we depend on God, but we don't pray. And you'd be like, yeah, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't add up. Our practice of prayer in our lives is showing how much we depend on God. Realizing the power to save us, to save others, to change even our hearts doesn't come from us, but the power comes from God. God, we thank you that you reign and you rule far above all principalities and power. And that we will see victory because you have indeed overcome all evil in the world. God, I pray for us that our hearts would be more in tune with this amazing gift that you've given us. That at any time, at any moment, with anything, we can stand before the creator of the universe, the one who loves us unconditionally, and pray. God, would we be more increasing in our reliance upon you as seen through the prayers in our lives? Would you cause us this week to remember to pray more, to build habits of prayer, of relying on you each and every day? Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>